I want to draw attention. Any time uh, to, to, I, I teach in a place, I always try to ask, Lord, what is it that you would have me say? Because I have no idea what's going on in the fellowship here. I don't need to know. But I try to connect myself to the Lord and say, God, what is it that you have for this group of people? And so I want to draw attention to the book of Psalms and looking at one of the Psalms to start with and hopefully to end with, Psalm chapter 124. And I'm going to warn you ahead of time, I'm going to be flipping through several different passages, um, probably, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight passages or so. We'll see how this goes. <laughs> I'm waiting for the day that you'll allow me to go for two hours. <laughs> Seahawks are playing, what are you doing? <laughs> Psalm 124. And by the way, I'm not making fun of the pulpit anymore. The reason being is that I had someone speak at my fellowship there in Sandpoint, and they made fun of my pulpit. <laughs> it hurt. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> so, Psalm 124. A song of David, a psalm of ascent. He says, If it had not been for the Lord... Who is on our side, let Israel now say, If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. When their anger was kindled against us, then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord, who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made the heaven and earth. Begin in prayer. Lord, as, we, as I said earlier here uh, this morning, that you're the only God that rewards humility. You're the only God. Every religion of this world rewards strength and power and prestige and pomp show and presentation, force and threat and authority. And yet that is not the secret wisdom that comes from you. That is not the secret wisdom that you displayed on Calvary's cross where you overcame the revealed wisdom of the world, where the devil was showing his anger and his threat and his power, and yet you through humility destroyed the devil through your secret wisdom and humility. And thus by your wisdom, by humbling yourself to the will of the Father, destroyed the work of the enemy. And Lord, you are the only God that gives this kind of grace to a man, to a woman, a boy, and a girl, that though they be stoned like Stephen in Acts chapter 8, can lift his eyes to the heavens, and his face will glow like an angel, and he'll see you seated there at the right hand of the Father. God, I pray that we would recognize that this world is only passing. It's a trial, a test, a moment and let us make decisions and cast our lot with you in the midst of the pain or the panic that we're in so that we can be victorious in Christ, whether or not that looks like immediate victory in the eyes of men or an ease of pain. Let us walk in your way. And so, God, I pray for those people, particularly those who feel swallowed up, overcome. I pray for any of the leaders here in the church that feel swallowed up and overcome. The Lord, if you are not on our side, we will be destroyed. And so, God, we come with beseeching hands. We come with humble hearts. 
we ask that you would speak and you give your grace. And God, I recognize that I'm just a mere man. I'm not <laughs> anything but that, but I have you living inside of me. And I'm sanctified, I'm set apart, I've kept my eyes pure, Lord. And God, would you use this cleansed vessel? Would you set me apart at this moment to speak to these people? We pray for this grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, the psalmist obviously in speaking here was a man who was experiencing a level of danger and threat. You can't say we, the Lord has saved me unless, in fact, I've experienced a situation in which I could be threatened or destroyed at any given moment. And yet David here at this point in one of the Psalms of Ascent says, but if the Lord had not been on my side, we would have been destroyed. If he had not been with me, we would have been swallowed up. And I wonder how many of us have been in situations, perhaps, where you feel like I'm dying Lord, unless you rescue, I think of the psalmist says, Lord, come to me quickly. Lord, I don't have another moment. I'm despairing. And yet here's the man that speaks of the blessedness that has escaped from the fowler's snare, the blessedness of the man that has seen the deliverance of the Lord. I mean, when did they sing the songs of praise in the book of Exodus? When, before or after they crossed the Red Sea? Well, they crossed it after they went across the Red Sea. Then they sang the song. But I would suggest to you, that if they could sing it before they crossed the Red Sea, this would be faith. And so often when we live our life, we say, God, I want you to deliver, and we have no faith in it. We're acting as though he's dead, and then we cross the sea, and we see deliverance, and we praise him then. But faith enters in by the disposition of trust and say, God, I'm going to build myself up in the most holy faith by giving glory to God. You can read it later. It's right there in Romans in chapter 4, or is it 5? I'll look at it later. You look at it later, where it says, Abraham did not waver in his faith, but he gave glory to God. And there it tells me the key to becoming an overcoming one, that when I'm wavering in the faith, that is those things that I don't see, because faith is not what we see, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I face these trials, and I'm saying, God, I don't understand. I don't see it. I don't know how to get out of this. But Lord, let me live upon earth in the midst of this trial as though it's true that you are God. And for myself to remind myself that you are God, I'm going to remind myself of who you are so I don't think that everything is determined by who man is. And I take my eyes off of myself and my situation and I glorify God. I sing the songs of praise. I lift my voice to him and I think about who he is so that I don't grow weary and lose heart. And if the Lord had not been on my side, I would have been swallowed. If he had not been my guide and my God, I would have been destroyed. And when I see a man of God, I see a man who God is backing up. Does God back us up? I can even make the wrong decisions at times, but my heart being true to God, I think that I'm supposed to do this, and I do it, but it was the wrong decision. But because my heart was right towards God, he came in, backed me up, and he saved me quickly. It doesn't mean that we're not going to face trials in this life. But in facing those trials, there's a God who cares. And so if the Lord had not been upon our side... And then with a clarification, and I want to be fair to the totality of the Scripture, it would be wrong to say in many senses that the Lord is just willy-nilly on the side of everyone and anyone that wants Him to be on their side. It would be wrong to say, God, you're on my side, when in fact I'm walking in a path that is completely contrary to Him, because why would He support a person in a path that's contrary to Him? Why would He support a person that's going to lead down a path to their own destruction or the harm of another person? And so therefore, when I look at God and I say, God, if you had not been on our side, the question then comes to my mind is, who is on whose side is God? 
And in very sanctified sense, I would say that God is on the side of those who are on his side. That is, in some measure or another, they agree with him. Is it what Amos says? How can two walk together unless they agree? And I begin to align my life in a certain way that makes the decisions based upon his character is revealed to the word by the spirit of God, by the word of God, and I begin to commit myself to what I do not always understand. When the word of God tells me to do something and I don't understand it, I do it anyway because God, I don't know what, and I might do it wrong. Maybe I'm missing the point, but then God looks at my heart and says, yeah, you did get that wrong. That's not really what I'm saying there, but nonetheless, I appreciate your heart because your heart was trying to align yourself with me. And all of a sudden, I say, God, whatever it is, whatever I do, whatever I'm about, I want to just do what you're doing. This is the ones that God backs up. This is the one that God protects and preserves. He looks at the heart. Man, he says in the book of Samuel, looks upon the outward appearance, but God looks upon the heart. And God, I would rather have the wrong actions but the right heart than having the right actions and the wrong heart. Preferably, I'd have the right actions and the right heart. But if I had to take my choice between two extremes, and so God, would you look at my heart? I'm trying to seek you. I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm being misrepresented and slandered or misunderstood. I'm trying to do this thing and that thing, and and they don't get it because I'm trying to live after a kingdom that they don't see. I'm trying to behave according to a principle that they know not. And because I'm displaying in my flesh a principle that is not noble to the natural man, he's afraid of it, and the more I seem to be trying to do what you tell me to do, the more people attack me. But even in that, I'm not going to lose heart. I'm going to commit myself by faith to what it is that you've told me to do, and I'll walk by obedience to you, trusting that you will back me up, trusting you that in Psalm 121, you will not let my foot slip. It feels like I'm going to die, Lord, It feels like I'm going to perish, but God, I trust you. And Satan in his stupid stupid wisdom comes and deceives us by saying, react, get in your flesh, do something, work it out, be strong, fight back. And yet our God is the only God that has the audacity to say, wait upon the Lord and he will renew your strength. That is a disposition of faith. When you're in the trial and the panic and everyone's saying, react, 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 I step by faith and I say, God, I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to wait upon you. And this godliness takes an intentionality. It's nothing passive or blasé. And I begin to enter in by a disposition of trust towards him and say, God, if you do not move, I'm toast. And I trust you. And I live according to your way. But if I'm going to walk with this God, I must walk in the way that he walked. And so it tells us in Ezekiel in 22, chapter 22, and I'm only going to read it here quickly, to show you an example of a group of people, even the people of God, that were not walking with their God. He says in Ezekiel chapter 22 and verse 3, he says, you shall say, thus says the Lord God, a city that sheds blood in her midst so that her time may come and that makes idols to defile herself. You've become guilty by the blood that you have shed and defiled by the idols that you have made. And you have brought your days near. The appointed time of your years has come. Therefore, I've made you a reproach to the nations, a mockery to all the countries. Those who are near and those who are far away from you will mock you. Your name is defiled. You are full of tumult. And so suddenly we see here precedent within the scripture that God is actually not for somebody. The people of God that were to be the representatives of God upon the earth began living according to the idolatry of the system of the world, yet still with their mouths they're claiming the name of God. And God says, because you love the gods of the Babylonians, 
because you love the pagan system of the world so much, what I'm going to do is allow you to drink the cup of them. And they're going to come, and you, you like the gods of the Babylonians? Then I'm going to allow their gods to come and destroy you. You want them to be your gods, then I'll let them conquer you as a people. So there'll be no dichotomy in your heart. You'll be completely given over to the Babylonians. I'll allow you to get a full drink of what it is that you want. And when you begin to put it in those kind of a terms, you think to yourself about the sins that we think are freedom. The sins that we engage in, they're actually bondage. And what if God would come to us and say, you really want that? Do you really want that lifestyle? Do you really want to act out those behaviors you're viewing on a screen? Do you really want it? Okay, fine. Drink it up. Drink it to its dregs. But along with the initial taste of joy, you'll experience the violent vomiting and drunkenness later on and the headache that follows. Drink it up. Take it in. And God has given man a free will. And so that when you look at a man, like in Ezekiel 22, the nation, when they're walking in the way that they're doing, there's no precedent biblically for God to back up a person like that because why would he back up the person that's leading in a path to destruction? And that person could raise their hands the way they did in Isaiah chapter 1 and say, oh God, hear us, help us. But he says, stop praying to me. Your hands are full of blood. You've murdered men. You've lied, you've stolen from them, you've cheated them, you've ruined them. Stop your, this show. And he calls these people to come to repentance so that they can align themselves with him. And the man, if the Lord had not been on our side, we would have been destroyed. But if a man is living accordingly, he's not on the side because he's not going to back up a lifestyle that is destructive to self or to others. And therefore, we shouldn't be foolish to say there's deliverance. But rather, there's the rescuing of a man, of a woman, that would come in the bankruptcy of need and say, God, would you save me? And salvation in our minds, we've always put it to be a distant thing in the future. One day, out there, I'm going to heaven, it's a contract. And the scripture doesn't speak of contracts. The scripture speaks of covenant. It's a world of difference from a contract. And he wants man to live in covenant with him, which is a relationship with him, and we're walking with him, and as we know him and walk with him, John chapter 17, verse 3, this is eternal life, that they know you. What? I thought eternal life was going somewhere someday. No, the gift of God is eternal life. It's not the gift from God is that you get something one day. The gift of God is presently, right here, right now, eternal life. What is eternal life? It's the only life that has no beginning and no end. And what is the life that has no beginning and no end? It's the life of God. So when he says the gift of God is eternal life, he's not saying God gives you something apart from himself. He's saying the gift of God is eternal life. God is the gift. God is the impartation of the life eternal. Read 1 John chapter 5. In him we have life. The life is in his Son. And the life is the eternal life. The only eternal life is the life of Jesus Christ, his son, and the gift of God. He is the gift imparted unto man is the eternal life right here, right now. And he is one that comes to save you. Not one day in the future, a promise of a contract to go to heaven. He saves you, Matthew 1, 21, from your sin. Well, somehow or another, we've contextualized certain biblical terms and framed them within the context of a culture that is not known for its biblical authority, but rather its looseness and not only its approach to the Scripture, but the practice of it in their lives. 
So should we define these words according to the culture that perhaps has been created around us? Or should we define them according to the word? And what he tells us here is that he comes to be a savior. Come to me quickly. Come to me now. Come to me at this moment. I need you, Lord. And the salvation that he offers isn't a promise to go somewhere. It's something right here, right now. The grace of God, Titus 2.13, the grace of God teaches us how to deny ungodliness. What kind of grace is it to leave us in sin? I'll tell you what grace. Jude, verse 3, false teachers in the last days sneak into the church and they turn the grace of God into license to sin. What is the false grace? It's the grace that keeps you dead in your sin. But the true grace that comes and saves me is one that is available to any man. And in a sense, you have to reach out like Noah did for the dove. And you say, God, please give me this kind of grace. Give me the grace that is a power greater than I. God, if you did not back me up, I'm swallowed. If you don't save me, I'm done. This is a grace that is biblically defined, certainly not culturally. Well, in the book of Job, he also throws out a concept. I think it's in picture form. You look at the book of Job, and Job is the, uh, right before the Psalms themselves. If you go to the Psalms, you take the left one uh, book. And I want to look at Job chapter 41. It's talking about Leviathan, this mighty sea monster, and we don't know what Leviathan was. They always tell us they didn't exist with man. I think it was the Paluxy River, was it, in Texas, if I'm recalling correctly. They show footprints of dinosaurs and men side by side. We got this farce that somehow that dinosaurs were one age upon the earth, and then there's another age where man existed. That's nonsense. Dinosaurs are great big lizards. Lizards don't ever stop growing. In the environment before the flood, it was a perfect greenhouse, and things lived really perfectly and got really big. I mean, how big can that Komodo dragon get? I mean, it just lived for a long time. Well, you had these dragons upon the earth. The histories of man tell of tales of dragons upon the earth. We talk about smog from the Hobbit movie or something like this, and maybe they weren't like that. Maybe it was an exaggeration. Maybe it wasn't. But what was Leviathan? The, question, the answer is, I don't know. But it gives a description here of Leviathan, of this massive monster, this huge creature. And God asked them a question about Leviathan. And the reason, as we saw, and maybe some of you remember last time I was here several months ago, we talked about the ostrich. He gave the example of the ostrich of a bird that appears to be able to fly, but it can't. It lays its children upon the ground and they're crushed. And he puts the ostrich upon the earth to show how foolish men are that they can trust in a religious system that claims to be able to fly and gives lots of birth to children, but they leave them vulnerable to the world around and they get crushed. But God says, mount up like wings on eagles. And we talked about that in our previous study. But here in Job chapter 41, he brings in another animal, Leviathan. It was a mighty monster. And this Leviathan, he says, can you draw out Leviathan with fish hooks or press down his tongue with a cord? What's the answer? No. Can you pierce or put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make you many, verse 3, will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Can you imagine smog going, how can I help you today? <laughs> will he make a covenant with you to take him from your, for your servant forever? 
Verse 5, will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you put him in a leash for your girls? Hey, honey, hey, hey, little girl, I got you a pet animal. What is it, daddy? It's Smog, the dragon. You know, he's got a little leash. Could you do this? Will, you, will traders, verse 6, bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fish his, fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hand on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. What does God say? Try it. Remember the last time you tried? You'll never do that again. He is a mighty fortress. So this is the conclusion in verse 9. Behold, the hope of man is false. Behold, the hope of man is false. So what God does is he creates a monster upon this earth, this giant animal to show man his weakness. In other words, God will actually have the audacity to orchestrate or ordain or create situations to demonstrate to man his own impotence and his weakness. But man in his foolishness tries to conquer the problem in his own strength. He tries to conquer, even as he tries to conquer the dragon here in his own strength, so man today tries to conquer the dragon in his own strength. He's saying, I'm going to do it. I'm going to take the bull, I'm going to try this and do that and do this and do this. And I stop and I say, how well has that worked? And God comes to man and he puts this dragon, get your, how has it worked? And what he's showing is that man puts his hope within the created thing and thinks that by the created thing, whatever it is, will save him, or he can conquer it himself. He puts his hope within the machines or the mechanisms or the strengths of man, but not in our God alone, and our God is our only hope. I can't but help think of Star Wars, the first one. There it is, Princess Leia. Help me, Obi-Wan. You're our only hope. <laughs> Help us, Obi-Wan. You're my only hope. In a sanctified sense, there comes the person of God. And no, that's not a good model of Christianity, but nonetheless, there's that movie it is. But nonetheless, there it is. We're saying, help me, Lord. You're my only hope. It is stupid for me to try to destroy this dragon. It is stupid for me to try to conquer it and make it happen. God, am I walking with you? Will you back me up? When I don't see your strength and your power, God, I'm going to proclaim your greatness. I'm going to remind myself. That's why I like worship songs, because it reminds me of who he is when my heart is telling me otherwise. I love worship songs that focus on the nature and the character and the truthfulness of God, because those become the vehicles that build me up in the faith for those of us that are trying to walk a godly life in a godless world. And we're being persecuted for it. We're, we're putting ourselves in contexts or dilemmas or situations that seem contrary to the wisdom of man around us. And yet God continually shows himself strong for those who will have faith in him. But the problem is man's hope is, is hopeless. The hope of man is false for the simple reason that man places his faith in the wrong thing. And as much as we can begin to say, my faith is in God, we can sing, you know, sing that song, my hope is in you, Lord, all the day long, and then we go out in fear and fret. You know what I found about Christians? Christians don't tell lies. They just sing them. <laughs> my hope is in you, Lord, all the day long. <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do. And that kind of fear is sin. Because there's no basis for fearing for the servant of God. 
I'm afraid of no man, no situation, not because I think I'm bigger than any man or any situation, but because my hope is in him. And I've seen time and again God back me up when doing things that are only right before him and seem foolish to man, even religious men offering me advice otherwise, but saying, God, like face, like scent, like steel, I'm going to go to the cross in Jerusalem, and I'm going to go to the place you called me to go, and God will back me up. That death will maybe happen, but I will give you resurrection life. Well, in Jeremiah in chapter 43, we've got a problem. Because we talk about the hope of man being false in, in the book of Job chapter 41, but in Jeremiah chapter 43, we see something else. If you go to the book of Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, Isaiah, Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 43. Jeremiah chapter 43. You remember the life of Jeremiah the prophet? Jeremiah was a lonely prophet. He preached for 45 years or so within the city of Jerusalem, telling the people to repent and turn unto the Lord. What did that repentance look like? Submit to the Babylonians. The Babylonians, they're more wicked than us, the book of Habakkuk says. What do you mean, submit to the wicked Babylonians? God told Habakkuk, Habakkuk says, God, why are, why are the people in our country so evil and wicked? He goes, I'm doing something. He goes, well, what are you doing, God? He goes, well, I'm doing something, but you won't believe me if I tell you. If I tell you, your ears will tingle. He goes, well, what are you doing? I'm sending the Babylonians. Habakkuk says, the Babylonians, they're more wicked than us. He goes, see, I told you you wouldn't believe me. <laughs> Jeremiah, for 45 years, has been preaching, repent. And these people had the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They had the religious system. They had the, quote, authority of God on their behalf. They put their hope within the things that man have made, structures, organizations, and everything else in the name of God, except for one thing, God himself. And there they were, so confident and so sure that they were walking. But here comes the lonely prophet. And how many converts did he have in all those years? None. The prophetic ministry or any ministry is not about getting people to approve of it. It's trying to be right and true to what God is saying. And in time, maybe 45 years, people will say, oh, you are a servant of the Lord. Oh, I hated your guts, but now I see that God was with you. And the weeping prophet was mourning over the fact that the children of Israel would not turn, and yet they had such confidence. So he's saying, turn away, repent, turn to the Babylonians, submit to them. Now, they could have stood upon their Bibles the way we do, falsely sometimes. I believe standing on the Bible, but I don't believe taking it into context, nor do I believe taking every passage exclusively meaning to me. Because what they could have done is something like this. Well, 150 years ago, the same problem faced a great man called Hezekiah. And Hezekiah was a great king of Israel. And the Assyrians came against Hezekiah. And Hezekiah prayed. He turned his face to the wall, brokenhearted. Isaiah said, you're going to die. And, and all these things, he repented. He turned to the Lord. God blessed him, and he sent a deliverer. And in one night, 185,000 Assyrians lie dead outside of their walls. Hope was gone, and God delivered them. And uh, they could have stood on the Bible. You can go in and claim certain things and say, that belongs to me. No, it's not the word of God unless God is saying it. We believe it's the word of God if God said it. God said lots of things, but he didn't say everything to everyone. When he speaks to the Messiah, he didn't say that to me. Truly, you are my son in whom I've loved. He, he, when I read him Psalm 110, it says, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. He didn't say that to me, but he said it. He said it to Jesus, though. 
And it applies to him. So when God speaks, when Hebrews 4 says the word of God is living, active, it's a double-edged sword. When it talks about the word of God, it's what he's saying, not what he said. What he said is true, but it's also given in the context of a time frame and a group of people. His character never changes, which we can derive from certain passages. But the message explicitly in of itself does not apply across the board. Why? Because just because God told deliverance to Hezekiah doesn't mean every group of people is going to be delivered. So they could have stood upon their Bible and said, God delivered Hezekiah, he's going to deliver us. And in some sense, it seems that they were doing exactly that. He sent the true prophet, but they had hordes of false prophets saying, God's going to deliver this people. Until 45 years later, the Babylonians came destroyed the city, just like Jeremiah said. And now they came to Jeremiah in chapter 42, actually. They come to Jeremiah and they said, tell us what you want us to do. Our hearts say, run away, flee to Egypt, because the Babylonians are going to come back again and they're going to destroy us even worse. Our hearts want to run to Egypt. Egypt was always a type of the world. The, the, church, the, the people of God were brought out of Egypt, out of the world, by the blood of the Lamb. They crossed through the rivers of baptism, the Red Sea. They enter into the promised land, the spirit-filled life. It was always a type of coming out of the world. So when you look at the whole aspect of their temptation to go back to Egypt, it was right after they, who thought they were the people of God, were hearing the voice of God to turn from their sins, but rejected that voice, then came under the judgment of God, which was thorough and complete. Then their reaction to their disobedience was run into the world. God failed me. God didn't fail you. You were listening to a false teacher. And that's why he says in 2 Peter 2.1, even as there's false prophets in the Old Testament, there'll be false teachers in the New Testament. You were listening to false teachers that were telling you things that were not true, but you heaped them to yourself to tell you what your itching ears wanted to hear because they satisfied a lust within your soul. And the basis of acquiring truth is not by saying, how does it make me feel? The basis of acquiring truth is saying, God, what have you said? Are you saying this to me? How does this apply? And I can't know it unless I'm walking with him. If I have a heart to know him, the word of God becomes so easy and clear to those who love him, who know him. And so they finally come to Jeremiah and they said, listen, we'll do whatever the Lord wants us to say. You tell us what to do. And Jeremiah basically says, read chapter 42 for yourself. He says, look, I'll get away and pray. He gets away and prays, and he comes back, and he says, this is what God wants you to do. Don't go to Egypt. Don't flee into the world. Don't go back to your old ways. Don't do it, but stay right here and submit yourself to the Babylonians that God is using in your life to judge you, to bring a purity into your life. In other words, stay in the place of God's dealing with you. Stay in the place of his judgment upon you because he is not going to judge you to destroy you. One day that happens for those who completely reject him, but for those who love him, he punishes us. As Hebrew says, those he loves, he chastises us. Jeremiah is saying, stay in the place of his chastisement. Let him purge out of you that wickedness. But if you run back to the Egyptians, you won't find the God that you claim to be seeking. And so suddenly he tells them this after they say there in chapter 43 in verse 2, he says, you're telling a lie, he says at the end of verse 2. You're telling a lie, Jeremiah. The Lord our God did not say to you, do not go to Egypt to live there. They just got done in chapter 42, verse 3, saying, the Lord made him show, show us anything that the Lord wants us to do. We'll do it. And then here they come in chapter 43, verse 2, they're saying, you're a liar, Jeremiah. God didn't tell us to do that. 
But Baruch, the son of Neriah, has set you against us to deliver us into the hand of the Chaldeans that they may kill us and take us into exile into Babylon. So the Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the commanders of the forces and all the people did not obey the voice of the Lord to remain in the land of Judah. So it becomes tricky at this point in time. Our hope is stupid if we place it in the great dilemmas, our ability to overcome Leviathan, but it's equally as stupid if we place it in a false notion of who we think God is. A man who places his hope in a false god, though claiming it to be the true God like these people, is hopeless nonetheless. You see, the temptation that you and I have is always to place our hope in what we see, our own strength and our own prowess. In 1 Chronicles in chapter 10, he speaks about this. There was a man by the name of Saul. In 1 Chronicles chapter 10, Saul, the first king of Israel, listen to what it says. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa, and the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was surrounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took it upon his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died. In verse 6, thus Saul died, he and his three sons, and all his house together died. And when all the men of Israel who were in the valley saw that the army had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled, and the Philistines came and lived in them. And then in verse 13, he says, so Saul died for his breach of faith. Why did Saul die? He died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium, that is a spirit, a spiritist, a spirit guide, seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. What was Saul? Saul was the picture of what every religious group of people wants. He was, the scripture says, head and shoulders above everybody else. You could look at Saul. He had strength. He was broad. He was strong. Everything about it, you'd say, I want to be part of that. Why? Look at the greatness of it. And in the last days, men are going to flock towards Saul. They're going to flock towards what Revelation says, the woman that rides the beast. In the last days, they're going to be enamored with it and say, yes, that's God. That's strength. That's power. That's everything the natural man wants. I want to see right here. I don't want faith. Some of things so far, the evidence of things not seen. I want sight and call it faith. Which one do you want? Do you only want a religion that you can see right here, right now, and grab, yes, this is it? Or do you want to enter into that lonely path of Christ that may not in this moment see the fulfillment of everything that he has promised, Hebrews 11, but by faith presses on? The great temptation of the last days is like the children of Israel here. They're going to say, I want Saul. I want men, a, a group, a people, a strength that is head and shoulders above all men. But you know what the problem is? Just like in Revelation chapter 17, what happens to the woman, the false religion that rides the beast in the last days? 
what happens to the church. Remember, John says, I looked at her and I was astonished. This is what the church has become in the last days? A harlot that's whoring with the world around her, no longer a virgin bride of Christ, but a whore that's sleeping with the kings of the earth? And she's riding the, the beast herself? She thinks she's controlling the situation? What happens to that woman? The beast turns on her and devours her. What happens in the last days to the false church that is not going to walk the way of truth, but run after every Saul that they see? Saul will take them down. His sons will be put to death by the Philistines. They will die upon their sword. They'll kill themselves. They'll die in the faith. But not until Saul was removed could David be enthroned. And David was the young shepherd king that in the quiet place, in the lonely place, sought the Lord. He had no sense of security. His own family didn't like him. You remember when the prophet came to his father and says, here's your, oh, you know, these are good-looking sons. They're big and strong. And he went, through. no, the Lord said, he's not it. Nope, he's not it either. He, are there any more sons of, of your, uh, here, well, there's David, but who really likes David? He's out in the field. Imagine this, bring all your sons in. He brings all of them except for you. <laughs> what? It's like the family comes over and they said, hey, grandparents come over, they haven't seen you maybe for 20 years or whatever. They lived overseas and they come and say, show me your grandchildren. I've just missed you, whatever. They've been in the outback somewhere. <laughs> and he said, bring in all your children. You bring in all your children except for you. <laughs> These are my kids. These are all of them? Yep. There's no more. I thought you said you had five. Well, well, yeah, okay. These are the ones I like. But Billy, God bless you if your name's Billy. Billy's out in the field, and this is why God bless you, because you're like David. He's out in the field. And David was despised. David was looked down upon. But because of that pain that he was put in, he could have become bitter over it, but he chose to become more like Christ. And he thought about the Lord. People didn't want to be around him or whatever else for whatever reason. He says, but God, I want to know you. And the lonely years can be beautiful years if I use them and redeem them to know my Christ. David learned the heart of God in loneliness, in the place of pain. And it's not until Saul is removed from the situation that David can be enthroned, and God looks for that. And of course, the scripture reveals to us that the son of David is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not going to turn there for time's sake. But in John chapter 1, verse 11, you know what it said about this Jesus? It said that he came to his own, but his own received him not. And this is the saddest verse in all the scripture. He came to people, but they didn't receive him. There's a verse in the Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon's right before the book of Isaiah. If you want to turn there quickly, I'm going to read the verse. It's the Song of Solomon, chapter 8 and verse 4, and I'm only going to read verse 4. Listen to this. He said, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. I adjure you, don't wake up love before it's time. What does this mean? What is the Song of Solomon about? It's about a love story in the first instance between Solomon and his bride-to-be. 
She's longing, oh, my, my, my beloved has legs like cedar. Big stump of legs. And he goes, oh, my beautiful bride, she's like a mountain goat. Really? <laughs> You're from Montana? What is going on here? <laughs> she's, a, she's like a mountain goat. Like, she wasn't a mountain goat. <laughs> she's like one. That is, she prances upon the rock. She's light-footed, we could say. And it's all this romantic, my lips are dripping with honey type of thing. And they're writing these love letters back and forth. I don't exactly recommend young people reading the Song of Solomon. You don't recommend reading the Bible? Uh huh. <laughs> Get married first. <laughs> you would not believe what's in that book. But it also became a picture of the love relationship between man and his God. Do we have that kind of love for him? I am my beloved's, my beloved is mine. Do we look at him and say, God, I belong to you, and you have belonged to me? God, I've entered into this dynamic of relationship, but then he says, but be careful not to awaken love before it's time. What do you mean? Isn't it any old time to fall in love with Jesus? You know what I'd suggest to you? This is against pop culture. No. You say, what are you, a Calvinist? No. Isn't it any time to fall in love with Jesus? No, because don't awaken love before it's time. What do we mean? God is the one who draws men. God is the one who's beckoning and calling after men. It would be like trying to give birth to a baby before it's time. But babies are good, we could argue. But if you give the birth to the baby before it's time, the baby's going to be sick, and it may even die. Isn't any time a good time? Now's the day? If the Spirit of God is reaching out, I have to be willing, led by the Spirit, walking with Him, making sure that I'm not living in a lifestyle of sin so that I know the Spirit of God, saying, God, I'm willing to talk to anybody and everybody, but God, I only want to talk to those that you're drawing right in this moment because that guy over there might not yet be broken. He might not yet want to give up his idolatry. He may not want to turn away from his sin, but he'll add you to his life and retain those 6,000 other gods. So he may not come to the point where he's broken. So Lord, do you want me to share with him? What do you want me to share with him? But I don't want to awaken love before it's time because he may come into a wrong, adulterous relationship with you. Do you understand? There is a time that God reaches to a man. At the end of Luke, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've desired to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks. But you wouldn't have it. You, why? Because you did not rec recognize, watch this, the time of God's appearing to you. There's a time, oh, Savior, Savior, do not pass me by. There's a moment that he comes to a man, like in the silver chair with C.S. Lewis, where the man who's the picture there is basically he's possessed, but he comes to moments of sanity, and in his moments of sanity, he wants to be freed from the bondage, but then he becomes possessed again, and he enjoys the bondage. I had a man tell me, he says, that was my life, but those moments of sanity got less and less and less. There's a time where God appears to a man. There's a moment today if, if, God doesn't say you hear his voice every time. It says if, today, if you hear his voice, 
Do not harden your heart as the children of Israel did in their rebellion and did not enter into the promised land, did not enter into the rest, which is Jesus, did not enter into the spirit-filled life. There's a time that God comes. There's a moment, and if we don't heed the time, our hearts get harder and harder and harder. And so if you turn to the right in Isaiah chapter 42, it speaks about our Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus became man, he humbled himself to a man. He's fully God, but he emptied himself, Philippians 2, of that deity and became humanity. And as a man, he lived dependently upon his father. He was the second man, the second Adam, the second one that showed us what a man was really like. In Isaiah chapter 42, behold, my servant, speaking of Jesus, whom I uphold. Who does God uphold? His servant. And in this case, it's talking about Jesus, but the principle transcends Jesus, not because we are Jesus, but because the character of God towards his servants doesn't change. Behold, my servant whom I uphold. God upholds his servant. My chosen, that is, he has chosen me for a purpose upon this earth. Will I walk in it? In whom my soul delights. God delights when we walk in the purpose. I have put my spirit upon him. He anoints us for the service. He will bring forth justice to the nations. That is, a servant of God won't compromise truth. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. That is, he's not there to give a show or a presentation. God's servants never draw attention to themselves. But a bruised reed he will not break. That is, he's gentle with the broken. A faintly burnt wick he will not quench. He won't snap out, snit, uh, wipe out a flickering flame. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will never compromise truth. He will not grow faint or be discouraged. The servant of God that gets discouraged has ceased to be the servant of God because you've looked at your circumstances and not God who has called you and anointed and you appointed you. God, there's no discouragement for the servant of God. None. And the best thing for those of you that are discouraged is to confess it the way God said to He says, confess it is sin. Break the power of it. God, this is sin. I've been discouraged. I've been downhearted. I've been living not by faith, but I've been living by sight. I've been acting as though you're not God. I've been acting as though you don't rescue me, so I might as well just live in sin. And that's the trap of the devil. Might as well just go back to Egypt. But God upholds his servant. Have you been in a time where it's so dark? Don't lose the faith. Build yourself up. Don't waver like Abraham did. Build yourself up in the faith. How? Give glory to God. This is who you are. This is what you've done. This is what your word said. I trust you. I praise your name. When I can't see you, I know you're here. When I can't feel you, I know you're near. I will trust in you, and I will not be afraid. And I begin to build myself up in the faith. But God fashions us into his image in the trial so that glory alone can be given unto him. So it says in Romans 8 that a certain frustration comes into the creation so that the sons of God can be revealed. How is the nature of God planted in us seen at the world around? The frustration that God has built Leviathan. God put Leviathan there. He put an impossible situation. We've tried to conquer him. We can't. It's stupid. Your hope is stupid because you're trying to think that you can overcome it. I can't but my hope is in you and you alone. You're my only hope. 
don't be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. And one last verse in Isaiah chapter 12. I've done quick because I have many things that I didn't say, but I'm going to trust the Holy Spirit to fill in the gap. <laughs> Isaiah chapter 12. When the servant of the Lord is walking in the fullness of the Lord, there's a song that comes from his heart. Not a song of routine. Why do we sing? What's the deception? What's the danger in doing public worship service? You say, well, it can't be any danger. It can. Everything can be danger. Teaching the Bible can be danger if we're not doing it right. Doing church can be dangerous. What's the danger of singing songs? It can give the appearance that we're walking with God when, in fact, maybe we're not. That's why I said we don't tell lies. We just sing them. I give you my life, Lord. I give it everything to you. And we deceive ourselves by singing that, and somehow we have. It's like, whoa, wait a second here. Examine yourself. I don't want to be a liar before God. God, do I really want to give everything to you? By the way, you can't outgive God. You think you give everything to him and somehow you're at loss for it? <laughs> God's a debtor to no man. He is a debtor to no man. And I have to believe the reason the approach to worship ministry, which isn't here, but it's becoming more and more this raucous kind of like, we've got to make God come, and it's raving, and it's here, and this radical. The reason that has to take place is because there's no sense of the reality of God in their life. There is no obedience. And the only sense of obedience is that we are walking in fellowship Him by approaching it in that way. Because there's no truth behind the simplicity of the song. There has to be an overarching yelling message to reinforce something that's not true. I'm not going to talk about that, but let me close. When this joy is there, because I realize God is my strength, you will say in that day, I'm aiming at only going five minutes over. <laughs> you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. What is Isaiah 12? Have you been rebelling against God? You need to repent need to turn to him. And that day when I repent, his anger will turn away. He's the only God that'll do this as well. But I turn, behold, God is my salvation. I will trust. I won't be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation right here, right now. With joy, you will draw waters from the wells of salvation right here, right now. And you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. This becomes the song. When I repent and I turn, God has dealt with me, and I've come to confrontation with him again in truth, and so what does it say in Psalm 124 as we close? In Psalm 124, it says, if it had been, not been the Lord who was on our side, and who is on whose side is the Lord? Those who are on his side. And it goes both ways. Starts with him, ends with us. But if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, 
Let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. When their anger was kindled against us, then the flood would have swept us away. The torrents would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has given us as prey to their teeth, who has not given us as prey to their teeth, who have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken. We have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. You don't have to have the resources to do what God tells you to do. You just have to do what's right. Maybe I told you this story. I've had new stories, but I can't remember if I told you this one, but this is a good one, so I'm going to tell you an old one. We have a property, a very big property, a Bible college, and I hope you'll consider it. The great standpoint is, is in your bulletin there. There it is. We had to drill a commercial well. Wells are expensive. I looked at my pocketbook. I looked at the task ahead of me. I have to drill a well, so I looked to the Lord and I said, oh well. (laughs) (laughs) So they came out and drilled the well and it wasn't terribly expensive, believe it or not. It was like $20,000, which was a bargain because it's a commercial well for for a population of 500 people. We can have a small city out there. And there's room for it too. And the problem was is that we didn't have $20,000, so I did what all godly men do. <clears throat> Took the credit card and boop. <laughs> That'll give us a month. <laughs> and two days before the bill was due, two days, an anonymous donation came in for $25,000. We didn't tell the church. We didn't beg for money. We didn't say, we're really broke. We're going to go out of business. I got this wonderful agreement between me and God. You can put me out of business anytime you want. It's freeing. I got this other business. Guess what? This church doesn't belong to me. It belongs to you. That property isn't mine. It belongs to you. So you know when the fires were raging? They were just right over the hill from us. They were raging all around. People from here are calling me up. People from everywhere are calling, oh, you guys, we're praying for you. I said, oh, big deal. Don't worry. I said, if God burns the place up, I'm free. <laughs> I did my part. I can do something else now. Thank you, Lord. It's a trip of a journey. But there's been way too many miracles for him just to burn it up. But if he did, praise his name. And the fires are getting closer and closer and closer. Smoke is filling the valley. We can see the fires of Isengard. <laughs> you know, it's coming against us. There's no hope. But look for the light from the east. And then comes Gandalf. Okay, I'm getting weird. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have any fear. And I said, God, you can take it if you want. You can keep it if you want. I knew it wasn't going to burn, but if it did burn, I knew it would be God. Why? Because it's not mine, it's yours. Praise your name. Wonderful freedom of the children of God. When we only do what he told us to do, we don't take possession of things on the earth. We use them to bring glory to him. And if taking those possessions away will bring glory to him, that's fine because the object isn't to gain those possessions, it's to bring glory to him. So however you want to bring glory to your name because you're establishing me for eternity, not for time, fine with me. It'll cause me to be misunderstood by a lot of people. Well, Ben's bailing out. He just doesn't care about the work here. Or slandered by others. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Because God will always back up a person that is only doing what he's told to do. 
And when you only do what you're told to do, you don't have to have the resources. You only have to do what's right. And if you do what's right, God will say, this is righteousness. Righteousness. Doing what's right upon the earth. I I went 10 minutes over. (laughs) God, I pray that you would give us the grace that we need. I pray, God, that you would speak to these people. I pray that you give great grace to the children's ministry workers. They're probably pulling their hair. (laughs) But I truly pray for these brothers and sisters in Christ, those of them that know you, that they would walk by faith and not by sight. They would not live according to the pattern of this world. They would not look for a Saul in religious context. They wouldn't become part of the woman that rides the beast that has great influence and power over the kings of this earth, but rather they would seek to be lowly like Christ, meek and lowly, walking in the path of humility, knowing that by faith you will back us up. The God who is unseen will be seen in your favor and your smile to those who fear you and love you. The weak and the broken servants can look at the 5,000 in front of them and say, I only have a couple of fish and five loaves, but we can place it in your hands, Jesus. And you lifted the bread to heaven. You said, Father, thank you. You thanked him before the miracle happened. We always thank you afterwards. But by faith, he thanked you before the miracle. And that loaf did not become two half loaves. That loaf became two loaves in your hand. And so God, you can take that which is not and make it as though it is because you are a great God. Forgive us of our sins for living on this earth, for thinking that it's all about here and now. Let us only do what you've told us to do and leave you with the consequence, and there is freedom. And for those that don't have that faith, you said faith is a gift from God. So ask him. Say, God, would you give me that gift? And then build yourself up in the faith and remind yourself of who he is. Declare his greatness. Go to the Psalms. Remember who he is. Don't forget it. Hold on to who he is. Read Ephesians 1. Remind yourself of his great work and your worth in light of Christ. So we pray for this. I pray that you touch us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.